want to thank Philip for uh, standing in for me. I was supposed to lead the service as well, and uh, he uh, took that for me in the hopes that I could get through the sermon. I apologize for my voice. If you can believe it, it's better than it was last night. So I thought, oh, I'm improving. Um, so with God's help, um, we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1. And we started into this uh, a series on this little book last week and looked at the first five verses in particular and learned about a little family. And remember, this, this book is taking place within the period of the judges, a time of, of moral and religious anarchy and chaos. And um, it's, a, it's a book about a little family and what happens to a family in that setting. Um, children, can you help us remind us who's in this family? When this starts, yeah, go ahead. Okay, Ruth came into the family. That's good. That's good because the book's called Ruth. We got to remember that one. Yes, Naomi. Okay, good. So yes, Elimelech. So there's a husband and a wife, Elimelech and Naomi, and then who else was there? Yeah. Okay, Kilion was one of their sons, and they had another son. Yeah, Malon or Malon. Yes. So this little family of four. Uh, mom, dad, and two boys went off to Moab because there was no food in uh, Bethlehem where they lived. And then once they got out there, in the course of 10 years, uh, first Elimelech, the husband, died. And then uh, the two sons married women from that land, Moab. Uh, and that's where we get Ruth and Orpah was the other one. And then the two sons died. And so in that 10-year period, poor Naomi's lost her husband and both of her sons, and it's just her and her two daughters-in-law living in Moab. So that's where we'll pick up the reading now in verse 6 of chapter 1. This is the word of God. Then she, that, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight, and should also bear sons, would you wait for them to, till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, um, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And there will end the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us this morning. Well, I've read a very moving account of a Christian man in Greece who was called by the Lord to minister to the lost. And uh, he did that as best he could. He was sharing the gospel. And some people were converted by that. But rather than celebrating uh, the conversion of these people, uh, the people in the community uh, attacked the man who had been sharing the gospel. And he was beaten, and he was thrown in the prison. And you can imagine uh, what his thoughts were as he's in the prison wondering, God, how could you let this happen to me? This is what you wanted me to do. I thought I was doing your will, and now I'm suffering. Uh, where are you, God? Why have you left me like this? And I think it's easy for us when we're in times where things are not going well, we suffer hardship, to ask that question. Lord, why have you abandoned me here? Why have you led me into this difficult place? Why are you not working with me? What's wrong? What's going on? And that's very much what was going on in Ruth's situation, or sorry, Naomi's situation, that we're going to be looking at in this passage. But I think each one of us from time to time struggle wondering, if God has walked off the job in terms of our own life. And this passage is a wonderful reminder that God is always at work. He's always at work to accomplish his sovereign purposes in your life. And he does this working in you, working through you, and working for you. And uh, the point of the passage then is for us to learn to see God's gracious hand at work in our life, even in the difficult times. And Lord willing, that's what we'll see as we look at this passage. Children, if you want to draw a picture for me, you might draw a picture of Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. And the two daughters-in-law do something very different. And uh, maybe draw a picture of the two daughters-in-law. What do they do uh, in this passage we read? Well, there is an outline in the bulletin if you would like to follow along. And the first point we want to see is that trusting God is difficult when life is hard. Can you folks in the back, can you hear me? Okay, great. Trusting God is difficult when life is hard. So last week we saw the difficulties that God had let into Naomi's life. She suffered bereavement 
losing her husband and two sons. Uh, she suffered the displacement of moving uh, from her home in Bethlehem to Moab. Uh, her sons died 10 years. They, they lived with their wives and had no children. So infertility and, uh, and the desire for children that was never fulfilled. And so she's left uh, with these sorrows as well as knowing uh, that the family land back in Bethlehem is likely to be lost out of the family forever. Uh, she has no one to provide for her. And furthermore, with uh, no offspring, her family name is going to be extinguished. We talked last week about what a serious thing that was in Israel. And so into this completely hopeless situation, a little bit of light starts to shine. And we read in verse 6 how she heard that the Lord had visited his people. God had brought food again. So she does the only thing she can do. She decides she's going to go back and try to eke out her survival back in the promised land. And in verse 7, it tells us she walks to the edge of her village with her two daughters-in-law. Probably they're just accompanying her out there, and she's thinking she's going to say goodbye to them. She approaches the edge of the town. In verse 8, she tells them to go back and uh, to stay in Moab. She doesn't want these two women who are also widows to go with her. And it's very interesting, the commentators, and, and these are good commentators, disagree on what Naomi's state of mind is. It's one of the great things about the book of Ruth. It's, it's almost all dialogue. You never hear what the people are actually thinking. So you have to make inferences. And some commentators think Naomi's just overwhelmed with bitterness, and she just wants these, these girls to get out of her life. But others think Naomi's uh, a model of tremendous faith here. And what she's doing is she's asking these women to count the cost uh, before they make this journey. And my guess is Naomi's probably a lot like us. It's, it's probably a mixed bag. And, and there's faith, and it's also mixed uh, with a real lack of hope. I mean, there, on the one hand, she does genuinely care about her daughters-in-law. That's, that's clear. In verse 8, she thanks them for their kindness to the dead. She's thanking them for being good wives to her sons. She asks for God's blessing on them in verses 8 and 9. She encourages them to find rest in the home of new husbands. She wants them to remarry. She kisses them. She weeps with them. In verse 11, she calls them my daughters. And she gives them really practical advice. She says, stay home. Return to your homes where you know people. You have an extended family. You'll be cared for. You have a hope of being remarried and starting your lives over. There's no hope for you coming with me. Uh, Naomi, I mean, we talked last week about the difficulties of being a widow. And so we might, well, having three widows, isn't that three times as good as having one widow, right? It's, it's not good when, when it's zero, right? Three times zero is still zero. And so having, it's just more mouths to feed and, and, and nobody to, to provide for them. And it's clear from what she says, she thinks their only hope of finding a husband would be to stay in Moab. Now she goes on in verses 11 to 13 to say, you know, even if you waited, uh, I'm not going to have sons for you. And the implication is you come with me to Israel, nobody's going to want to marry you there, and I'm not going to have sons for you. So there's really no future. 
And besides all this, it seems like she almost feels like she's cursed. So you see what she said there in verse 13, uh, where she says, No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And that's actually military language. That's the, the, the term for an army going out and attacking uh, an, an enemy. And that's the way she feels God has interacted against her. And so she's just saying, you know, you should get as far away from me as you can because bad things are happening to me. Now, Naomi does have some good qualities. Right? She loves her daughters. She's trying to do what's best for them at some level. She does love God. She sees that God is behind everything that's happened. Eight times in this little passage that we read, she refers to God. And six of those times she uses the covenant name for God, the Lord. So she knows that all of this has happened because of God. The problem is she is so convinced that God is angry with her, she does not see any future for herself. She doesn't see any hope for the future. And not because God's bad, but because God has turned against her. So when she comes to the town in verses 20 and 21, and the people say, is this Naomi coming back after 10 plus years? She says, no, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And actually, that name Mara is taken from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, where the people came out of Egypt and complained against God and called the place Mara, bitter. It's a place of complaining and bitterness. I put the, the cross-reference in your outline. And on top of all this, it's clear that Naomi must have shown the wear and tear that she'd been through uh, on her face. The people look at her and they say, is this Naomi? Uh, when you get to be my age, uh, you go back to the uh, high school reunion. There's some people that look like they're still in high school, right? But there's a bunch of people, you're like, what happened to you? Um, the years have been hard on you. And, uh, and that's what Naomi, the years had been hard on her. And she had been through the ringer. And so as a result, she just has lost hope. And this is why she says to Ruth, go back to your gods. Right? That's terrible evangelism. Go back to your gods in Moab. But because she just doesn't think God's going to bless her and by consequence, Ruth in the promised land. And for that reason, I think Naomi is a lot like us at different times in our lives. This woman is a believer. She knows that God is sovereign. And, and we know that. And yet, we come to points where we just don't think God's going to bless us. He's not happy with us. That we cannot be hopeful about our future. And, and perhaps that's because she feels like it's all her fault. Maybe she feels like, well, we, we made a bunch of bad decisions. We never should have left. And, uh, and so God's mad at me. And this is all happening because God's mad at me. And I don't know if you've ever thought of your own situation that way, that God's brought hardship into your life. And it's tempting to say, well, say, well this is all my fault. And that may be true. But that doesn't mean that God has given up on you. 
That doesn't mean God has evil intended for you. And this book is a wonderful picture showing us that that's not the case at all. God is at work in the lives of his people. It's difficult to trust him when things are hard. But secondly, we see here that genuine faith, that is a gift from God that enables us to trust him even in the hard times. So Ruth and Orpah here face a, a very important decision. I know you young people, it's hard to believe this. This is even more important decision than like whether you go to college and where you go to college. Some of you are facing that choice right now. This is a big decision. Where are they going to go? Orpah makes the sensible, practical choice. You know, you could choose a life of uncertainty and suffering and striving to survive and amongst foreigners in the land of Israel, or you could choose a life in a familiar setting with extended family members, a support system, and uh, the prospects of uh, starting a new family if you stayed in Moab. And so that's what she does. Christopher Wright commenting on this says, Orpah simply did what one would expect a person from an unbelieving background to do, apart from sovereign grace. Her decision is really a natural decision. Ruth, though, makes a different decision. In verse 14, we're told that our Orpah goes away. She kisses her mother-in-law. Ruth clung to her. And that is the same Hebrew word that's in Genesis 2.24. And it talks about the man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, to be joined to his wife. That's the kind of commitment that Ruth is showing to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She's going to cleave to her. So Ruth is the one who makes the radical, surprising decision, which is to leave everything she knows and to go to a foreign land as a widow, traveling with another older widow. And we have in this passage some of the most beautiful and powerful words in all of scripture. She says to her mother-in-law in verse 16, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. It is an unbelievable declaration of love and commitment. Matthew Henry says about this, nothing could be said more fine, more brave than this. But we need to really see these words for what they are. We like to put them on a sign and put them in our house. They come, they find their way into marriage ceremonies. They're inspiring words. But really what these words are are an expression of faith in God. They are a testimony of faith in the living God. Because she makes this point that your people will be my people, your God will be my God. That is the essence of God's covenant promise to his people. I gave you an example from Leviticus 26, 12. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. And Ruth is here showing that she is a believer in that covenant God. 
This is not just family loyalty. She commits herself to staying there after Naomi dies. She's going to stay there. She's not just in it for Naomi. She wants to be buried there. She wants to live her life. She's throwing her lot in with the people of God. And she's so serious about this that she seals it with an oath. Did you catch that at the end of verse 17? She says, may God do so to me and more also if I do not keep this promise. She's calling down a curse on her head if she doesn't follow through. Gordon Cuddy speaking about this says, she who was not a Jew outwardly after the flesh had become by grace through faith a Jew inwardly and had cast her lot with God's people. It's a beautiful testimony of salvation. Some of you old timers uh, may remember uh, when I finished my graduate program here at the university, I was offered a job in Cambridge, England. And uh, I went over there and we, we really looked very seriously about that. And there were a lot of things that were really positive about it. It was a, it was a good opportunity. It's a good research situation. Be a, a chance to live in a, in a foreign country. And we sought counsel on that. And um, we also obviously loved what God was doing here in Bloomington. And at the end of the day, we decided that God was calling us to stay here. And we could wonder, you know, what would life have been? I, I don't know what life would have been. I'll never know what life would have been like. I can guarantee you this, it would have been different. It would have been different. And sometimes in life we have these pivotal decisions that really do have consequences downstream. But nothing so great as this decision right here. I'm gonna leave everything I know because I want to serve and worship the living God. That was the greatest choice that she had. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, she was choosing Jehovah plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus Jehovah in Moab. And she was willing to throw everything away so that she could have God. Ian Duguid said, who now remembers Orpah? She rejected the road to emptiness, but at the same time, unknowingly, she turned aside from the one road that could have led her to a life of lasting significance and meaning. Ruth chose God and nothing. But children, you need to understand, this is the greatest choice you will ever make as well. It's not enough to love your parents and to want to please your parents. That's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And it wasn't enough for Ruth to love Naomi and want to please her. Orpah loved Naomi and wanted to please her. You've got to love God. You've got to put your faith in the living God who is the only one who can save you. And that faith, that trust God, even in difficult times, that is a gift from God. But thirdly, we see here the fact that, the fact is that God is always at work for your good if you're one of his people. I think that's one of the great things about this little book. 
And we said it earlier, God's not real, God, God is referred to, but the, te- the narrator never says God is doing this, God is saying that. God is at work though. It's all about what God's doing behind the scenes. And so how do we see that here? Well, God did re- re- give relief from the famine in verse six. He brought food. As an interesting aside, like why is there ever food? Why do you ever have food? Because God. God is the one who always provides the food, even if he does that through all kinds of different intermediaries. God provides the food. God also prompted Naomi to return. And it's possible God used this hardship in her life because he loved her. The New Testament tells us God chastises those that he loves. Sometimes we need Uh, We need difficulties for God to work as he intends to work. And how does God use this tragedy in her life? Can you imagine this? So she leaves home. She shouldn't have done that. She goes to Moab. But even though she did something that wasn't a great decision, she loses her husband. She lets her sons marry pagan women. That's how Ruth comes into her family. If she hadn't moved to Moab, if she hadn't lost her husband, if her, if her son hadn't married outside the covenant community, if her husband hadn't died without having children, if any of those things had happened, Ruth would have probably stayed in Moab. And it's just an incredible reminder. It looks like an absolute train wreck from our perspective. And yet God is orchestrating this to bring Ruth back with Naomi because God has something in mind. And I don't want to ruin the book for you, but we're going to learn at the end that Ruth is the ancestor of David. No Ruth, no David, no David, no Jesus Christ. But God uses this hardship to get exactly what he needs to happen. And notice in verse 22 at the end of the passage, It says, Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter with her, who returned from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The author is a genius. Well, it's the Holy Spirit, so it's not not telling you anything. But just tantalizingly draws us forward. It just so happened. And you're going to see this again. It's just these total coincidences, but it, it turns out, It's absolutely essential that they come at this point when the barley harvest is happening for two weeks in April. And then later the wheat harvest is going to happen. And everything that happens subsequently in the story requires that timing. Again, it's not an accident. It's God's hand at work. Uh, Stuart Olyot, who's a, a British preacher, has a series on Ruth. And he titled the whole series, Big Doors Swing on Small Hinges. And it's a great uh, way to think about how God works in our lives. He says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That that's his commitment for his people, that he is working good. Every detail of your life, if you are a believer, God has so orchestrated that he is, he is working it out for his good purpose and for your good also. 
And that includes the decisions you make, even the wrong ones. That includes your going and your coming, the people you meet, the timing of when it all happens. All of that is being controlled by God. And God is doing it all with your best interest in mind. Sometimes things that seem completely insignificant, God is using for great purpose. I tell people from a human standpoint, the only reason I'm even in the RP denomination is because of one phone call. And I was being a, an obedient son, and I, I called one of my dad's friends just to humor my dad. And it just happened that God used that phone call to totally redirect my life. But God's the one who did it. And God works that way in your life as well. He's always at work for your good if you're one of his children. But fourthly, we see here also that God must work in you if you are to know and follow him. And here, we really can't leave this passage without asking, why is it that Ruth chooses Bethlehem and Orpah chooses Moab? Ruth is willing to give up everything, but she chooses the path of eternal life. Orpah takes the comfort of what she knows and turns away from serving the living God. And the only explanation that cannot be found in the righteousness of Ruth or the hardness of Naomi, it's found in the sovereign grace of God. This is a great example of what Paul writes about in Romans 9, verses 13 to 16, where he says there, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And that is to choose some and not others. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's the reason anyone is saved. If you have come to faith, that's why you have come to faith, because God showed you mercy and changed your heart and enabled you to believe. God is free to work however he wants. He doesn't owe anyone anything. And Ruth is a poster child for election. She's a Moabite woman, a foreigner, brought up to worship the god Chemosh. She knows nothing of the true God, and yet she's willing to give up everything to follow God. And recognize, if you have come to faith in Christ, that's because Jesus has done that work in your life as well. And how is it that Jesus is able to save people like us? Well, isn't it interesting that Jesus was willing to leave the comforts of his home and come to us and be an outcast and to suffer. And then in some ways, Jesus says to his people, right, you are my people. And in a sense, my God is going to be your God. And where you will die, I will die. That's what Jesus does. He comes 
and dies where we die. He cleaves to his people. And because of that, if you put your faith in Christ, you have his righteousness. You have the payment for your sins. And you can be saved. By nature, you and I are just like Orpah. We would do the safe thing, the the rational thing, the practical thing. But because of the Lord Jesus coming to us and cleaving to us, our hearts have been changed and we can see the glory of the Lord and his salvation. God's always at work in your life. He's working in your heart to give you faith and to keep you in the faith. And finally, we see here that God also promises to work through you if you belong to him. And now we might ponder for a minute how, from a human standpoint, did Ruth come to faith? I just argued it was God, it was the Holy Spirit, and and that's absolutely right. But we know from our own experience, the Holy Spirit doesn't just zap us out of nowhere, right? He uses means. So what were the means? You know, she saw a TV preacher, uh, one of the Gideons came by and dropped a Bible off, right? We we know that's not what it was. there's, There's no access to the scriptures there. There's There's no opportunity to hear a street preacher. There's only one way she could have learned about the true God. And that's through Naomi and Elimelech. That's fascinating to me. Because this family that made some really bad decisions and were out in a place they shouldn't have been, they still had enough of the grace of God upon them that these pagan, this pagan woman, Ruth, living with them, observing them, seeing the kind of people they were in the home, that's how she learned who the true God was. That's what God used to change her heart. I think that's so comforting to us Because we all are like Naomi and Elimelech. We've made bad decisions. Our lives aren't as cleaned up as we'd like them to be. And yet the scripture shows you, if you're one of God's children, God is so gracious to use us despite our weaknesses. And and I don't believe there's, you know, that there's a lot of high-powered evangelism going on. I mean, you... We read, right, Naomi, go back to your own gods. Like, her faith is not the greatest in the world. But that so, so much shows us the power of God. That even a weak faith on our part is something that God can use in the lives of unbelievers around us. I don't know what you're doing in your neighborhood, and your work. I'm surrounded by unbelievers and often so intimidated that how do you even start this conversation? And yet God's saying, just be a faithful Christian where you are. I can work with that. God can work with that. God does work with that. And that's a great encouragement. I began by telling you about a man in Greece 
shared the gospel and had some fruit, but then was beaten and put in jail. And while he might have been questioning why God let that happen, what he actually did while he was in jail was sing psalms and praise God. And then when God worked to open up the cells of the jail and the jail prison keeper came to see what happened, he said, hey, we're all here. You're fine. Don't hurt yourself. And that Philippian jailer came and bowed down and said, what must I do to be saved? And he came to faith through the witness of the apostle Paul. And this is the way it is for us. You may be in the darkest part of your life that you've ever had, but God has not abandoned you. He has you there for a purpose. And he's able to work for you and in you and through you to accomplish his sovereign will. What you and I need to do is to learn how to see that, to see it. So that we're, when we're in the prison, we're, we're singing and praising God, not lamenting and gnashing our teeth. Why has this happened to me, Lord? But that we would continue to trust him because God is always at work to accomplish his sovereign purposes in your life. And he's going to work for you and through you and in you so that you can see his gracious hand at work. Now let's pray and we'll ask him to help us learn and apply these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much more than we even understand and that you sent our Savior Jesus uh, into the world to cling to us, uh, to die in our place so that we could be saved and be your children and we can know that even when it looks like things are not going well, you are always at work. And we thank you, Lord, that you work in us to change us and to continue to help us grow and that you work through us, enabling us to, to be instruments in uh, your work and the lives of others. And we thank you, Lord, that this is all for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us a faith that clings to you in all circumstances and that you would, in fact, uh, accomplish your good will in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we'll respond back to the Lord by singing from Psalm 121, Selection A. <clears throat> this psalm, often people sing this when they're going to travel because it talks about, you know, looking to the hills and wondering where our help, our help is coming for. But the reason I chose it here is because it reminds us that yes, our only source of help is God ultimately. But it says here in stanza two that he will not allow your foot to slip and he doesn't rest while you, he keeps. God never sleeps. God never takes a day off. God never takes a minute off, a second off. He's always at work 
to protect and bless and guide his people. And you can sing these words with confidence because Jesus Christ makes it so. Let's stand and we'll sing together.